Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, our own Adam Tyner joins us to discuss his latest report on the inequalities, or lack thereof, in education funding. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses a Michigan study that investigates the impacts of a teacher-led course for college advising in place of typical meetings with guidance counselors. All that on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. Now, okay, people's heads are exploding out there, and because uh, this is a this is a big claim. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Adam Tyner. Adam, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Mike. You know. Our listeners are used to hearing you on the Research Minute when Amber's not around, but Adam is here to be our featured guest because he's got an important new white paper out this week. Part of our Think Again series is called, Is Education Funding in America Still Unequal? Question mark. Adam, I've been so excited about this paper of yours and uh, in this podcast, and I'll be very curious. You know, this is actually a good news story. Uh, And yet this is also one of these times when I'm not sure that that means that we're going to hear from our listeners, our our readers, you know, a lot of warm and fuzzy response uh, because uh, you are taking on something that's conventional wisdom, not just in, say, I don't know, the teachers unions or the ed schools, but also in the reform world. You are trying to make the case here that actually we've made a lot of progress when it comes to school funding and school funding equity. So let's talk about that in Ed Reform Update. Okay, Adam. So this paper, you're you're going after some conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom, I think we would say, is that, uh, you know, American schools are funded unequally, right? We all remember reading Savage Inequalities uh, when we went through, uh, I don't know, teacher training or maybe for some of you grad school. My understanding from that great syllabus project is that people still read this book. It still gets assigned today, Savage Inequalities. Do we have Savage Inequalities anymore in America? Well, it was one of the first things I ever learned about education policy. I think it was long before I even went to college. I learned that schools in poorer areas got less funding because of local property taxes. It was intuitive and it was true for a long time. Probably when I learned it in middle school, it was probably still true. But a lot of things have changed since then. And since Jonathan Kozel was writing those great books back in the 70s and 80s, uh, a lot has changed. We've had lots of school finance reforms. We have more federal funding. We have a lot more funding overall. So it means that both because of more funding and the way that that funding is being allocated, we just don't have savage inequalities. We don't really have any inequality between what wealthier and poorer students get in terms of their school level funding. The schools uh, in poorer areas get just as much funding. Uh, every study at the school level that I've seen, and there's not a lot because that school level funding hasn't been around very long. We've had scale uh, kind of school level funding only for a few years, but every study I've seen shows that it's very slightly progressive. Now, okay, people's heads are exploding out there, and because uh, this is a this is a big claim, right? That we have solved the funding inequity problem. Now, so let's be clear about a couple of things. As you said, this is between uh, different kinds of schools, right? Basically, between high poverty schools and affluent schools. Uh, this is not an analysis based on race, though. You did look at that issue as well. 
That's right. So when you just look at socioeconomic status, the best paper on this using that school level funding is by Ken Shores and his colleagues. Ken Shores is at the University of Delaware. I think some of his colleagues are at the University of Pennsylvania. And they have looked at school level funding nationwide and they look within states and they find that there's slight progressivity, meaning that the schools that serve more poor students get a little more funding than the schools that serve more fluent students. They also look at it by race. And what they find is that a lot of those gaps in funding have been closed. Uh, but there are a number of states that still have some gaps. Uh, most of those are not statistically significant. And so I think somebody would need to dig in a little a little closer. But there are more states that have some racial funding gaps uh, than have the socioeconomic gaps. This is also looking within states. If you look across states, you get some kind of wacky stuff where like in the South, they spend less money on education and there's also more poverty. And so if you look across states, you're comparing Florida to Vermont or something, then you might start picking up. Uh, well, you definitely do start picking up some uh, socioeconomic inequality that's driven by the fact that states spend different amounts. But I really think that when we're concerned about inequality, uh, whether it's racial or socioeconomic inequality in the funding of schools, we're worried not really about whether like Vermont chooses to spend more than Florida or or whatever. I think it's more like, you know, are the kids on the other side of the tracks or whatever geographical metaphor you want to use, the, uh, the students who are in a, a community, a neighboring community, or even in the same community because they're served by a different district or by a different school, are they, you know, not getting uh, served? And I think that's exactly what Jonathan Kozel found back in in the 70s and 80s, but it's just not true anymore. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, you know, you can certainly make a case that we should be worried about, say, the Deep South not spending enough on education because there's a lot of poverty. There's also a large African-American population there. Right. And uh, and of course, just the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and all the rest. There's also some who would argue that when we look at these measures, we should take out the federal funding because the federal money is supposed to be additive, supposed to be on top. Right. Uh, and so what we want is for there to be equitable funding. Uh, and then once we have that, then we need to add the federal money on top. And in this uh, analysis, though, that, you know, for the most part, you're saying, look, let's look at all the money in the feds, certainly a part of that. And, you know, people can debate whether that's the right approach. For sure. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with saying that, you know, different types of funding should be more progressive. I actually think there's a good argument that in some cases, funding should be more progressive than it already is. It's not very progressive. It's at parity about. And we know that schools serving a lot of high poverty students, they have challenges that other schools don't have in a lot of cases, and they may need more funding to address those challenges. I think that's part of what Title I, that's the largest federal program. The Title I money... Uh, is meant to address some of that inequality. And uh, there's, yeah, if you didn't have that, it would look more regressive. And I think that there's, if you look at both the student populations that those uh, higher poverty schools are serving, and I look at this in the brief, uh, those higher poverty schools tend to have more English language learners, for example. Lots of state funding mechanisms actually allocate money just for that. If you have another English language learner, then you get a little more money. And that may be part of what's driving, it certainly is part of what's driving the progressivity in funding and how we're getting to parity. But what it means is that if we're at parity and those schools have more needs, we may need more progressivity. Right. And, and that's a huge point. You know, you're not saying that, OK, 
necessarily let's uh, land the the plane and the aircraft carrier with the mission accomplished banner behind us. You know, there's still more work to do if the goal is to make sure that all kids get what they need to be successful and to to fulfill their potential. And of course, we I think would all agree that it costs more money to help kids coming from poverty to achieve their potential because they're starting school so far behind and they've got lots of needs that can be expensive to meet. And so we are okay with that. And that means we should have a system that is not just only at parity, but is also progressive. But that's a lot different than, you know, the the Jonathan Kozal savage inequality story. That part has been largely fixed. You know, I am curious, Adam, about one thing. I, I feel like People can think about their own local metro areas and they can all find some outlier where there's some fancy suburban school district spending, you know, 20, 30, maybe now $40,000 per kid. Uh, and that's what people latch on to is saying that our funding is unequal. I mean, how do you think about outliers? I mean, they do exist, right? I got to tell you, for this policy brief, I didn't look into the outliers. I was really looking at state averages. And so outliers, by their very nature, have if they're not very rare, then they're not really outliers and they must be dragging that mean around. Right. That's what we think of it statistically without getting too into it. If you've got a lot of outliers, if there's a lot of places that are spending forty thousand dollars per student and they're in one of those buckets, they're going to make the that mean go up. So apparently there's not many of them. I, I can't tell you that there's none. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and and so it is that anecdote, you know, and I because I, I feel like you do see some advocacy pieces where they'll latch on to those kinds of examples. It's not really a systemic problem, though, right? Right, right. No, I mean, that's that's, that's right. I mean, in, in the same way that we could all say, oh, sure. Well, you know, you can find, you know, Exeter probably spends $60,000 per kid. And so does that mean that should be that should be the base? One, one last thing, Adam, you know, it's a really interesting point that you make is that At some point, even if we get to very progressive funding and we spend a lot of money on places that have lots of poor kids, as some places, especially in the Northeast, have done, it might be a matter of diminishing returns. Uh, And it may be the case that spending more money on schools just doesn't make sense. We could spend that money better on other ways of helping those kids. Yeah, I mean, this is just something that has to be looked at within communities because it's not something we can say definitively what the returns to each dollar are at a systemic level. There's been all of these studies. We covered one on the podcast just a few weeks ago um, where they were talking about you know what it, how much bang you're getting for the buck for these additional monies that you're putting into education. And in some cases, you're getting, you know, it's indistinguishable from zero. We can't really tell. In other cases, there's pretty large effects and it's going to depend on the community. It's going to depend how much you're already spending. And it's also going to depend on other priorities because there are a lot of other social policies. And this goes back to Coleman and all the stuff that we know about how much the family and community contributes to somebody's education. But there's a lot of other things you could be spending money on besides funneling it into schools that are going to help young people and are going to have an effect on their educational outcome, whether it's better policing or health, better health care or food supports for families or child tax credits or, or whatever it is that there's a we can't just infinitely spend money until we get the outcomes we want. We can't just infinitely spend money on schools and think that that's always going to be the best mechanism for uh, bettering the, the life chances of those young people. All right. We will have to leave it there. Adam, thanks again for joining us. Of course, Adam, I I did not introduce you properly at the front, assuming our listeners all know who you are. But let me say that Adam is the National Research Director at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. And you can check out his new paper in our Think Again series called Is Education Funding in America Still Unequal? Question mark. Thanks so much, Adam. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure.
Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So first and foremost, congratulations are in order. Congratulations, Dr. Northern, for your appointment on the Virginia State Board of Education. Uh, Thank you, Mike. I am so excited about being on this board. We've just got such rock stars on the board and really have a nice agenda of new reforms we're going to try to put in place uh, with this administration. And I am super excited. Ah, I love it. I love it. Yes. Appointed also with Michelle Ashton, who is a charter school leader in, in D.C., amazing ed reformer. Uh, Emily Ann Gullickson is going to be the deputy superintendent. All of y'all working with Amy Gadira as well. It is a quite a crew. These are, as I said on social media, Amber, part of my language, but uh, quite the group of ass kicking women, perhaps the strongest collection of ed reformers ever assembled. Very cool. We're going to hopefully live up to that that name, Mike. We'll see. All right. All right. Good, good, good. Okay. Well, what do you have for us this week on the research front? We have a new study. Josh Hyman looks at the impact of a course that advises high school seniors about the cost and benefits of attending college. I like this one because, you know, everybody talks about guidance counselors. They need to be talking to kids about college. And, you know, lots of times uh, high schools don't have but one guidance counselor or they're overburdened. They can't really do a thorough job. So this intervention uses teachers, who else, <laughs> to deliver the 18-week fall semester course. And they were basically by the, um, you know, administrators of the intervention told to deliver this course in 18 weeks in the fall semester. They recommended that it be taught twice or more a week for at least 90 minutes total. So that gives you a little parameter of, you know, how much dosage we have here. The course, shoot, it sounded like one I'd love to take. It covered career exploration, the cost of college, the different types of colleges, the application process, managing your finances in college, sensible first-year schedule and help deciding on your major. So the randomized controlled trial took place in Michigan, 62 high schools, roughly 6,700 seniors, 31 schools randomly assigned to the treatment status in the fall of 2016 that received the course, 31 in the control condition did not. The analysis looks at college enrollment, persistence, field of study, and degree receipt. This was interesting. The schools had the flexibility to decide who would take the course. Some decided all seniors would take it. Some decided the kids could decide. Some decided they're going to use the class rankings and they're just so on and so on. So in practice, however, most of the kids experienced the course embedded in their senior English class. 63% of seniors in treated schools participated. So they have to look at the intent to treat effects of the course for all seniors in the treated schools, regardless of whether they experienced the course or not. The author says, you know, That's not a bad thing because that's the real world, right? That if we do this, we probably need to offer schools flexibility. It would help with how the intervention could be scaled. And it also accounts for the wide array of choices about who's going to enroll. And they think that strengthens the external validity of the study. Results are nuanced, but here goes. They found no effect on college enrollment, but increasingly they found once they looked out, they found an increase in the number of students persisting and earning a degree, particularly low-income students. So specifically, they find that this effect of persisting through college was driven by the economically disadvantaged students who saw large increases in enrolling and persisting to their third year, 
And then when they dig even deeper, they found that that persistence was driven by a shift in the composition of enrollment towards high achieving disadvantaged students. Mm. Yeah. Who were more likely to enroll, persist, earn an AA degree, and major in higher earning fields. Enrollment rates among low achieving students saw decreased enrollment. And then they dig into that and they find that the students' baseline high school GPA and SAT scores showed that low achievers were almost 10% less likely to enroll in college. And the high achievers were 4% more likely to enroll. So basically, they hypothesized that if that course had not existed, that those students would have likely enrolled in college and dropped out anyway, because they were, you know, already had those, those low GPA and SAT scores. So the bottom line is they saw a shift in the achievement level of the college enrollees due to this course. And they also find that a decent fraction of low advantaged, low achievement disadvantaged students in the absence of the course would have enrolled in community college versus a four-year institution. So they find some good news about the two-year versus four-year that more kids were going into four-year, which we've heard before. Oh my gosh. I, I love this. And you know, it's great, Amber, you're right. You know, the overall results, you're like, oh no, that doesn't sound very exciting. But you dig in, this sounds like a huge success to me because we're getting kids who, you know, are well prepared to go to college, to go to college and actually go to better colleges. And the kids who are very likely to not complete, to not go in the first place, which in my book is a big win, right? That is avoiding more heartache for them, more time lost uh, and money. You know, even if they're going, I mean, even if it doesn't cost them money for the community college courses, you know, it's costing them not working. It might be costing them if they're taking out a loan, you know, to live on a college campus. So I, I think this is great. And it's interesting to me that it sounds like what is basically English teachers most of the time teaching this course and maybe doing some nudging you know, differentially, depending on high and low achievement. Now, look, I can imagine a lot of our friends on the left, you know, could have equity concerns here that says, all right, but what if a teacher, you know, is is not good at differentiating and they end up discouraging kids to go to college who could actually do quite well there if there's bias. But, you know, I don't know, based on these results, it seems like positive rather than negative. That's right. And and I like that the uh, they I didn't have time, but they partnered with an association like an advocacy group that, you know, tries to prepare kids and develop this curriculum. And so the curriculum to me sounded, you know, pretty realistic in terms of what it covered and that they gave the, the topics, you know, they do talk about the cost and, you know, it's all it's not just yay, this is great. It's it's giving kids information to make more knowledgeable decisions. So I, I like that. And it's not like the teacher can decide whatever they, you know, they want to teach. It's it's like, a, you know, a standard curriculum that all of the schools are supposed to be following. I, I wonder if they explicitly talked about this issue about how a lot of kids go to college and they don't complete. One reason is that kids who weren't great at high school uh, measured by grades or these test scores, you know, tend to struggle in college also. And uh, I wonder how how frank they were about that. I, look, I, again, this this seems super encouraging to me and, and, and tough. I mean, there's a lot of pressure to not tell kids the truth about this. I, I think it was about 10 years ago, I wrote my one and only Slate article titled something like, hey, kid, you're not college material. And that's something hard for us to say to kids. And we worry that sometimes we say that to the wrong kids. But in this case, they were saying it to the right kids. 
Right, right. I mean, the other piece I didn't have time to talk about was that there was some concern that's going to take away time, you know, from other subjects. And because it wasn't always in English, but uh, they did dig into that and, and didn't find too much of that as they tracked the kids. So that's good. And it was an eight hour Saturday. That was the full extent of the training. So the teachers did have to give up a Saturday. But really, when you think about it, the cost of this intervention was pretty low, given the way that they uh, structured it. Well, I, I hope people can get past the overall effects and, and not get discouraged by that, but to see those differential effects. All right. Great stuff, Amber. Thanks so much for that. Indeed. All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.